Well, this is my favorite time of year, and uh, it is a glorious time where we get to celebrate the birth of Christ, right? And, uh, you know, like we talked about, Advent is not a word that actually was in my vocabulary, and Pastor Tom sort of, I thought it was a more of a traditional or, or a Catholic um, thing. And uh, he said, no, <laughs> it's actually something that we, we do often in the Christian circle. And it just means, like we said, breaking in, you know. And I can get on with that for sure. I've had my, my own Advent moment. Um, and in my life, it came at a time when I wasn't expecting. And maybe that's the story for you as well, that I was just going about my life and all of a sudden, wham, God showed up. In a lot of ways, like these shepherds, that's what happened to them. They were out in the fields and, uh, and you know, all of a sudden, angels appear. So God was breaking in, and his name is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Um, you know, today, many ask the question, is God real? This is a very popular question right now. It's been a popular question, I guess, for the, all, all the eternity, right? But in college campuses and liberal universities, this, 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 is, the, this is the debate, Right? They're taught and professors are teaching a, a, a religion called evolution. That's what it is. It's telling you that uh, there is no God, that we are just evolved from matter. And matter has just sort of happened. And we don't know where or whatever, but here we are spinning through space. And, you know, if you think about it, you're sitting here in Holden Chapel. And maybe you have plans afterwards and you think everything's sort of, you know, nice and tidy. And normal, and this is the way life is, but zoom out. You're on a planet. You're on a rock. You're on a space rock hurling through infinite time and, and space. That's crazy. And that infinite time and space, scientists say, is getting larger somehow. It's expanding. That's crazy. If you don't have context for God creating you, with a plan and purpose, this makes no sense. None of this makes any sense. Who are you anyway? What is all of this? God has come in to our lives to give us some sort of context, right? So you're sitting here, but really, unless God has given you some context for your life, if he's broken into your life and revealed himself to you, his creation for you, how can you know what's real? How can you know? So, in, when I was growing up, I was brought up Catholic somewhat. And um, I went to a Catholic school. They taught me about Jesus, and I have a lot of respect for the Catholics because they, they introduced me to Jesus Christ. So, growing up, I kind of had this, like, understanding. And I had a time in my life at a young age where God broke into my life. But I didn't have any context outside of that. I didn't really have an understanding of the gospel. And growing up, I just sort of lived godless as if, you know, maybe there's a God out there, but he's not really involved in my life at all. You know, he's out there and I'm over here and that's all right, you know. Um, but that's not the case. So today I want to talk about the God who is. Um, Pastor, last week he talked, he, he used this verse, the God who was, or the God who is and was and is to come. God who is, is first. You think if he was, is, is to come, but it doesn't work like that. It's just the God who is, he is first. 
and he was, and he is to come. So I want to talk about the God who is today. In Revelations 1.8, it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, the one who is and was and is to come, the Almighty, right? So like we said, in universities, they would say that, you know, they deal in science and not fiction, or they, we don't deal in, in, with faith. Science deals with facts. Okay. So let's, let's think about it for a second. So what they would, what the Big Bang Theory is all matter that ever existed that exists now was somehow compacted on some, something so small as a period. And that period spun and spun and spun and then it blew up and now we have all these universe, uh, these, you know, galaxies and everything else and everything that is, is somehow from that. So, we would say in the beginning, God, you would say in the beginning, dirt, matter. You don't deal in faith. It takes a lot of faith to believe that, that something has come from nothing is a scientific fallacy. You cannot have something coming from nothing. Something had to start all this. Something outside of all of this had to start all of this. Something outside of time and matter and space had to be made by something that isn't affected by time and matter and space. It's logic. You, it, you don't make something that you are. I know this watch is made because it has a function. It has a design. And we can look around us and see the design. So... There are certain arguments that we learn in college that were really fun, um, but they're interesting. And they're really actually, you know, it says that God confounds the wisdom of the wise. And so here's some simple arguments on why God is. And the first would be what we call the cosmological argument. And it basically means that you can't have an infinite regress of cause and effects, which basically means... This was caused by this, but it was caused by this, by, caused by this. You can't just have this infinite chain of cause and effects forever. Something has to be a hook on which that chain holds. Something started it. And, you know, the simplest child can reveal this by just saying, and then what? And what happened? Who created that? And who created that? And who created that? Eventually, you get down to like, well, I don't know. Right. The cosmological argument. Something had to have caused what they call the uncaused cause. The uncaused cause, that God is the uncaused cause, that he, did, he was not caused. Right? So, that's the cosmological argument. The teleological argument is this, that everything has a purpose. That life is balanced on a razor's edge. We are this close to the sun to not burn up, but this far away to not freeze. Right? That life is balanced, that everything has a purpose, that the trees outside put out the very thing that I breathe in, teleology. There's a purpose for everything. Just like this watch, when I do this, the time comes up. Oh, interesting. That when those trees breathe out oxygen, I breathe in and I live. And life is like that. And, you know, anytime we see compact, complex information we say designer that has a purpose look at the dna look at the molecules that build you everything inside of me is functioning to make sure that i'm working 
There's a design behind this. There's a designer behind it. And then the next one would be the moral argument. The moral argument would basically say, there's a moral law. So there's something inside of you that says there's a right and there's a wrong. If we're in line and I cut in front of you, something inside you is going to say, hey, buddy, I was here first. Why? Why is that right? Why is that wrong? If we're all just a cosmic accident, what's right and wrong? Who says? Who says what's right or wrong? We do society? Okay, but that's, if we're just monkeys and just whatever, we just like, then what, who tells me what's right or wrong other than society, other than laws? Okay, you can put laws in place to give order. But what, there's something inside of me that says, that's not fair. Even children know it. That's not fair. Why? Because there's a moral law. And because there's a moral law, there has to be a moral law giver. And that's that argument. Now, they're not all perfect, but they are very strong arguments for the existence of God. <clears throat> Though God won't be proven by some sort of mathematical equation, there are significant signs, and if we open our eyes to them, we can see them around us. So the, the next would be the eyewitness accounts. And eyewitness accounts, you get Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, they were eyewitness accounts for, for Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. And they all put down their accounts in separate ways. And they all are in, in agreement. Peter, uh, all these eyewitness accounts, right? And what happened? They died for their beliefs. Each one of them were martyred. Uh, pretty hard to get someone to believe a lie to the point where they're going to take a you know bullet for it. As soon as you put your life on the line, maybe you'd be like, all right, all right, all right. So it was a big hoax. You found us out. But there was a real Jesus. He lived. He did the says that they say he did. And he rose again. And they, and they had a, a chance to recant and they didn't. But they died for it. So the eyewitness account. Scripture is another one, right? I mean, my goodness, it is the most it's the most congruent text that we have in all of history. There's some 14,000 texts that from the old Testament alone, all in agreement over thousands of years. We don't have anything like that. I think the Iliad is the next in line. It has like four or 5,000 copies. And you say, that's pretty good. 14,000 all saying the same thing. The Old Testament is pointing to the New Testament, and the New Testament is pointing back to the Old Testament. All in agreement. So let's get into this a little bit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read through some scriptures. So is Jesus God? Okay, so let's say I'm an unbeliever, right? And Okay, well, maybe you can get me to believe that God is real. All right, so there's a God. All right, maybe all through these arguments. All right, maybe it's the most logical conclusion that maybe there is a designer. Well, how do I know that the God of the Bible is real, though? How do I know that Jesus is God? And is he, you know, there's a lot of religions out there that would say, no, they would say that <clears throat> Jesus wasn't God. He was the archangel, Michael, Jehovah's witnesses would say that the Mormons would say that, that he wasn't exactly God. They don't believe in the deity of Christ. They believe that he was, he was the archangel, Michael. They really believe that, <clears throat> but there's a lot of scriptures that disprove that Hebrews is just the first chapter would tell you that, that he was the exact expression. It says in Hebrews one of God. The exact expression. So 
the Trinity is something to be beholding, right? I mean, this is something that is a bit of a mystery. The three in one. We sang it this morning. Three in one. God in three persons. Not expressions of one personality, but three distinct personalities. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, three in one. Yeah? So Jesus, so here's some, here's some tests, okay? Um, so the God in three persons idea is really backed up by Scripture. So and here's how. Jesus fulfilled prophecy, one. Jesus claimed to be God, two. The disciples identified him as God, called him God, worshipped and prayed to him. You don't do that with an angel. These, remember, these were, these were monotheistic Jews. Right? They wouldn't worship a, a man or an angel. The miracles he performed proven. And fifth, the Jewish leaders recognized this claim to be God. There's other ones, but I want to look at these five. So Jesus fulfilled prophecy. So if you look at page 909, <clears throat> you'll find Luke chapter 2. Oh, yeah, it's wrong. Sorry. Yeah, because I was looking at another book. It was the Bible, but it was a different Bible. It had different page numbers. Sorry. 909. And it says this. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and expecting a child. <clears throat> While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over the flocks at night. There were shepherds out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them in glory, and the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those to whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Now you think for a moment, there's a lot of similarities between Jesus' birth his advent, and his resurrection. Both of them are bookmarked by shepherds running to see the thing and then running to tell people, right? The disciples ran to see the empty tomb. And when they saw Jesus, they worshiped him. Which says literally the verses, when they saw him, they worshiped him. And that's our response too. When we see him, we worship him. So, these shepherds, um, Alfred Erdersheim in the book, Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, he, he kind of outlined, he goes, he's a historian, he goes very, very deep into 
a lot of the historicity of, of these events. He said these shepherds may, be, may have been temple shepherds. And if they were temple shepherds, because Bethlehem was known as a place where they raised sacrificial lambs. Where in the temple, they would bring an unblemished lamb for sacrifice for the Day of Atonement. It had no spot, no blemish, it had to be a perfect lamb. And so they had to be raised a certain way. And so these temple shepherds would have known the law of Moses. They would have been taught in the scriptures. And so what they would do when they would find a lamb that was what they would say had a holy birth, because that was actually, there was, there was a process. Everything with the Jews with, uh, when it came to temple worship had a process to it. Holiness was taken very seriously. And so even with this sacrificial lamb, there was a holy process to it. And when the lamb was born, what they would do is they would wrap it in cloths and they would lie it in a manger because it would protect that lamb from predators. It would be a stone basin and it would protect the lamb from being attacked. And so when they hear, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. What's their imagery? What are they thinking? What were they doing? They were keeping watch at night. Why? Because it was the birthing season. They'd be keeping watch, waiting for a lamb to be born. So here they are hoping for a perfect lamb to be born. Maybe tonight's the night. And all of a sudden, an angel appears to them and says, guess what? It is the night. And you'll find they immediately knew the gospel from just that announcement. That that baby is a sacrificial baby. He is the Lamb of God who will be slain. Amazing. Amazing. So, Jesus fulfilled prophecy. That's our first point, right? In Isaiah 7, 14, it says, Isaiah said, Listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore... The Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive and have a son. And you will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And in Matthew 1, 22, 23, it says this. Wait a minute. Go back. Oh, Technology. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they'll call him Emmanuel, God with us. This is a New Testament confirmation of that verse that we heard about. Is this what you're seeing? This is Emmanuel, God with us. This is Jesus. In case you are confused at which virgin birth we're talking about, there was only one. A virgin was born. And it would be called God with us. Jesus, even in his name, is called God with us. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This is no angel. He is the Mighty God, Eternal Father. A child born called the Eternal Father. Jesus is God. Jesus is the God who is. <clears throat> when Moses was in the, the, the deserts of Midian, he saw this vision of a bush on fire. And he comes near it because it's not burning. And he hears this voice. And it's God. And he introduces 
himself to Moses and Moses, and he calls Moses to go to Egypt and to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And he says, okay, who shall I say sent me? And he says, tell him, I am Yahweh, which means I am sent you or I am that I am. Sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. I am that I am Yahweh. And this word is really interesting in the Hebrew. There's actually four letters that make up this word. And it's the, it's the Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey, Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey. Sounds like one breathing, the breath of God. But it's something that they call the tetragrammaton. It's a very hard word to say. And that basically means that every Hebrew letter has a, an equivalent picture associated with it. So the, the, the Yod, and the Vav, the, the, the Hey, and the, oh yeah, sorry, Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey. So if you look at it, it means this. The Yod means hand. It's a picture of a hand. The Hey means behold. The Vav means nail. And then the hey means behold. Literally in the name of God is the gospel. Behold the hand. Behold the nail. Yahweh. I mean, come on. Jesus is the God who is. Jesus is the God who is. Jesus is the God. Yahweh. Behold the man. You know, when Pilate stood up Jesus, he says what? Behold the man. When Adam sinned in the garden, God said, behold, the man now knows good and evil. Behold the hand, behold the nail. Even within the name of God, from that time, he's revealing himself. I am the God who will take the nails. So Jesus claimed to be God is our second point. John eight fifty eight says this. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was... I am. And the Jews said, oh, great. That's awesome. They picked up stones because they knew that was blasphemy. They would say, oh, it's blasphemy. You can't say you're God. You're not even 40 years old yet, they said. How can you be before Abraham? He's saying he's eternal. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. So now, okay, I might believe in God, but how do I know that the that my belief in God is Jesus. How do I know that Jesus is God? Jesus is claiming, I and the Father are one. In John 14, it says this. Don't you know me, Philip? Even if he said, show us the Father. This is what Philip says to him. And we'll believe. And he says, don't you know me? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is claiming to be the Father. Well, not the Father. He's claiming to be God. He's the expression of God. The exact expression, Hebrew says. Thomas said, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were, and there he is saying the name of Yahweh, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. 
And then just four verses later, he says, my Lord and my God. <laughs> okay. I get it. I believe my Lord and my God. Jesus appeared and said, here you go. My Lord and my God. The disciples didn't say my archangel, Michael, my angel. He said, my Lord and my God. Again, a good Jew wouldn't say something like that unless that was revealed to him. While we wait on the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13 says, Jesus is God. And then third, the disciples identified Jesus as God, right? Oh, I went ahead, didn't I? Yes. So Simon Peter in Second Peter 1, it says this, A servant and the apostle of Jesus Christ to those who, through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, has received a faith as precious as ours. There it is. Through the righteousness of who? Our God. And then the disciples says this in Matthew twenty-eight seventeen. When they saw him, they worshipped him. And then fourth, it's the miracles that he performed. Through the miracles he performed, he proved that he was God. He calmed the storm, healed the sick, multiplied food, walked on water, turned water into wine, raised the dead, including himself. Proving he's God over all the things, over all creation. You know, it says that he's holding all things together by his powerful word. He holds all things together by his powerful word. No angel has ever held anything together by their words. The Jewish leaders, lastly, recognized his claim to be God. This is the reason why they crucified him, isn't it? Why does he speak like this, they say? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus heals a man, and he knows the thoughts of everyone in the room. And they, because he says, your sins are forgiven. Rise and walk. And they, he recognizes this. He can hear their thoughts, and he knows their doubts. Who can forgive sins but God alone? He didn't correct them. He didn't say, no, 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 wait, I'm not God. I'm just doing his work. No. He was the one who was able to forgive sins because he was and is God alone. Luke twenty two seventy seventy one says this. They all asked, are you then the son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. What need we any more testimony? Since we heard it ourselves from his mouth. His claim to be God was known by the Jewish leaders. And this is why they put him to death. And Jesus didn't squirrel out of it. He could have said, he could have said look guys, you got to understand something. I'm a messenger. I'm just doing his work. He claimed to be God. And for that reason, they put him on the cross. So why does all this matter to us in this Christmas season? Well, because we are about to celebrate in a few short weeks, a couple weeks, the birth of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus Christ. And for many of us, Christmas brings back happy memories, fond memories. But for some, this is a hard time. This is a time when 
you remember loved ones who aren't with us. Or maybe it's Christmas wasn't that happy for you. And this isn't really a joyous season. But you can rejoice with the angels knowing that God is with you. God is with us. And you can worship the God who is. And because Jesus is God, we should revere him. We should strive to know God through him. Jesus allows us access to the personality of God, his love for you. And we can live with an expectation of mercy. And we can learn to live in his presence. You know, back to the beginning, we were talking about these questions that people have these days. You know, they say, well, why won't, why won't God just like prove himself now? Why don't he just make it plain, make it obvious? Just appear all the time. Just make it really clear, like, remove all doubt. And I thought of a, a story because God wants us to come to him out of a heart of love. And he wants to know, wants us to know his love for us. And let's say a, um, let's say a prince goes or a king goes into a, a, a country adjacent to his where he's not known. And he sees a peasant girl and he begins to have conversation with this peasant girl and he starts to fall in love with her. And he thinks she might feel the same way. But he doesn't necessarily want to go and say, well, you know, I'm a king of this great big old country, you know, because and he doesn't want to come in with all his pomp and fanfare, because if he does, maybe she'll love him because of that, because of his power and his prestige. So he makes himself like her and he dresses like her and acts like her and they fall in love because she gets to know him for him. Right? Jesus doesn't want us to worship him for what he can give us. Eternal life and all that. Jesus wants us to love him because he first loved us. Right? Yeah. And the cross is the expression of this. That he would take the nails for you and for me. You know, if you stand before a righteous God and you've lied and you've blasphemed and you've lived your life apart from him, but at some point in your life, you accepted Christ and you accepted his forgiveness and you fell in love with him. It's though you're standing before a judge and you are guilty, but he proves, he says you're innocent. But rather than just saying, you're innocent, go on your way, he takes his robe off and he takes your punishment. And we're all on death row, right? Sin has caused death. And we're all on death row. And death really means eternal death. And unless God broke in and changed all that, we'd still be on death row. We'd still be heading for hell. But God is broken to save. He says, no, I'll take their punishment. So God is a good God. And I said this before, that's one of the scariest things I could say, that God is good. 
Because you are not. We're not good people. We're not good people trying to get better. We're broken people. Serving an all-loving, all-knowing, all-perfect God. So in order to fulfill righteousness from a righteous standpoint, a good righteous judge wouldn't be righteous if he didn't punish wrongdoing, right? He, I can't be a good judge and not punish the crime. You've broken the law. I have to stand by the law and mete out judgment, deliver judgment. God can't sit and say that he's just unless he punishes sin. But he loves the son. The father loves the son. And the son is perfect and the son is righteous. And the son has taken our punishment so that you won't have to face it. And this is the God we serve. Who said, you know what? I'm not going to destroy all of humanity. Because that's another question. Why didn't he just, why did he make it like this? Well, because he gave us free will. And with free will comes a choice. And we all have a choice to love God or reject him. Yeah, he could have made robots. Because what kind of a loving God is just going to make himself known all the time? So you have to love him for what he does. God wants you to understand that he loves you and he's doing this for you. But we come in through the door of repentance. We enter into relationship with Christ through a door of repentance. Saying, God, I am not good. I don't uphold the law. And you are a righteous judge. And you have to punish my sin. But I stand on the promise of Christ and his forgiveness and the punishment that he took for me so that I may have salvation. And so we are able to live with an expectation of mercy. We're able to live with an expectation of mercy that we can obtain mercy for our transgressions through Christ. And in so doing, we're learning to live in his presence. The presence of God is something to be cultivated. We spoke about that. We can cultivate the presence of God in our lives. Learn to practice in your day-to-day, in your day-to-day walk. How to walk in the Spirit. How to move in the Spirit. How to have a relationship with that God who is. Because he is you can live because he lives because he lives we have a hope we have a future we can face tomorrow because he lives you can overcome you don't have to live with fear you don't have to live with anxiety you don't have to live in doubt because he lives and this is what Christmas is all about We get to celebrate the one who is. The God who is in my life can be the God who is in your life, in your loved one's lives, in your friend's lives. The God who is. We revere him. We strive to know him. 
we have an expectation of his goodness on us and mercy because he's taken our punishment and we can learn to live with the presence of God with a God conscience knowing that he's speaking to us moving through us living through us because he is amen can we all stand can we sing worthy this time She threw me a curveball this morning. I wanted to worship. She's like, nope, Silent Night. Beautiful words. I love Silent Night. I love the theology in the Christmas carols, right? Holy Night. Silent Night. All about that night. It's all about that Bethlehem. You know what Bethlehem means? It means house of bread. Right? He's the bread of life. Come to the house. He's here in this house with us today. Let's just worship him because he's worthy of it. He's worthy of it. He's the God who is. He's the God who is, and he's worthy of our praise. If angels can praise him for something that they're not benefiting from, certainly we can praise him because we are the beneficiaries of his grace, of his mercy, of his gospel. Father, we thank you for your goodness. And we praise you, God, for coming and dying on that cross for us. You were the one who was prophesied to come. You weren't just a baby. You were the Lord born in that manger, holy, the sacrificial lamb of God, who was prophesied of old. And Jesus, you proved it through what you said and what you did. And the disciples witnessed of it. They spoke of it. And the leaders, they crucified you for it. All because you loved us, you put yourself through this. And we owe you all the praise and glory, God. We owe you all our lives. A living sacrifice, holy acceptable thank you for your mercy thank you for your grace on our hearts on our lives that we don't have to just live for just an expectation of future hope but we can live with the glory of God now and we can live in righteousness now because you are righteous and if there's anyone here in this room who maybe you're going through something right now or you're you're battling doubt. Maybe you're battling in this Christmas season. Maybe you don't feel the joy of the Christmas season because you're feeling separate and distant from God. We want to make an opportunity for you here today to close that gap. And we close it by just opening your heart up to him and saying, God, come into my life into my heart change me I'm sorry for my sins I'm sorry for my doubt I'm sorry for my hard heart Lord forgive me cleanse me heal me forgive me you know sometimes the enemy can get in our minds and lie to us God doesn't love you after all that you've done there's no way he wants to keep you in that guilt and shame and that's not Jesus 
that's not the heart of Christ. The heart of Christ is saying, come to me, come to me, come to me. So if you're here today and you want to come to him, I don't care if it's your third, fourth, fifth time doing this. You want to come to him this Christmas season. I'll ask you to raise your hand. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Today you're going to make him your savior. Today you're going to, you're going to separate yourself from the world and say, God, you are my God. And I'm going to believe and I'm going to choose to believe. I don't know all the answers, but I'm going to choose to believe you. Forgive me my sins. If you raise your hand, I want to lead you in a prayer. This prayer doesn't save you. Repentance in Christ and the Holy Spirit bring you to him. But this prayer is a good start. And can we all pray with, with those who have raised their hands here today? Say, dear Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And today I believe that you lived and died for me and that you love me enough to die for me. Forgive me. Heal me. Make me new. Wash all the dirt off. Cleanse me, Father, by the blood of Jesus. In your holy name. Amen. Amen. Can we give him a hand? As the worship team leads us, if you raise your hand here, we're going to ask you to do one other thing. We want to pray for you. I can't go to you, all of you, but you can come here. We can pray for you here. Would you be so bold to step out so we can pray for you And uh, as the worship team leads us? And for the prayer team, could you come forward too so we can just pray? And We just want to make this a holy moment. If we could just stay for a few more minutes and seal, seal the deal. If you raise your hand today, we ask you to come. There's no shame in it. Come on. Come on, church. Let's give them a hand. Congratulations. Today's a day of salvation. Today's a day of salvation. Today's a day of salvation. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit's moving in this place. We thank you for salvation. We thank you, God, that you have moved on our hearts, that you've done something great here today. And, Lord, we're just so thankful, Lord, that we get to be a part of it. We just get to be a part of this little story, this story here in Holden, Massachusetts. This small town, much like Bethlehem, was a small, nothing town. And you did something great in it. Father, we thank you that you're doing something great in this place today. And we're rejoicing with the angels. It says that if one has come, all the angels of heaven rejoice. And so today, the angels are rejoicing in heaven over the one who has come to Jesus. Can we worship with him? Father, we thank you. We worship you. We thank you, God, for all your grace and mercy, Lord, on us. Father, we thank you that salvation is coming to this house. We thank you, Lord, that you're doing a work in this house, in our hearts. And Lord, may we remain in you and walk in that newness of life. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Worthy are you. Worthy are you.